Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Mike Wilson, Chairman at Havis Media Group, Australia and New Zealand. Welcome, Mike. Well, thanks for having me, Darren. Well, and thank you for uh, having me To This is the Havis Village, isn't it? It is, yeah. You're sitting here in Harrington Street in the Rocks, which is... Uh probably recognisable to most people by the giant Bushels Tea sign on the wall because it's part of the heritage of Sydney and it's got a great history as a building. And uh, yes, you're right, all of the Havas um, companies all together under one roof in what we call the Havas Village. It's interesting, isn't it? Because both you and I, without dating us, but let's just say we started our careers last century. Mm-hmm. Um, were last started- millennium. <laughs> or last millennium, of course. Yeah. Well, but we worked at a time when media and creative were inextricably linked. Mm-hmm. And then, what was it, the mid-90s, they separated the two into separate businesses. But, you know, the whole psychology, I guess, to me, of uh, having a village like this is to, in many ways, physically bring back together those parts, mm-hmm. if not uh, financially. Mm-hmm. I think... Uh that's exactly right. And I think you'll see, if you look at the holding companies that still control the vast majority of advertising and media dollars in the marketplace, you'll see most of them have tried their own version to bring different entities, creative and media, d- different agency styles together. Um, probably, I think it's fair to say, with differing levels of success. I think. Um, Something that distinguishes the Havas approach is what we call the village approach, and that is literally having all of the different agencies under one roof. Um, if you had a walk through the building, you'd see that it's even physically designed to encourage and foster collaboration between the various entities. Of course, it's not just a, a creative agency and a, a media agency anymore. There's, there's lots of other skills and disciplines uh, that reside within uh, an agency holding firm, so whether that's what we what traditional PR businesses or content and digital services, experiential, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We all uh, cohabit. We work together, and increasingly, we work together on uh, different client assignments. Although I think it's fair to say that the industry as a whole, both on the client and the agency side, hasn't completely modernised in the sense that uh, it's commonplace to have uh, singular tenders where both creative and media assignments um, are, are part of the same tender, as you would know as well, mm-hmm. probably better than anybody in the P3 business. We're still largely uh, structured in a, in a way that was prevalent you know, 20 years ago or more. Yeah, and yet it's interesting, isn't it? Because the pace of change of the media landscape and therefore the requirements on creative agencies producing content for that media landscape has changed phenomenally in the past 20 years. It has. Well, of course, that was one of the accelerators or the reasons why media agencies, in some senses, broke away from the creative agency parent groups, if you like. I think there are, there are several other reasons as well. They're often corporate and political. But purely from a uh, capability point of view, it became fairly obvious 
probably 25 years ago that media agencies were increasingly going to be able to sing for their own supper as they became, the advent of digital technology came around, greater reliance on data. And of course, you know, it was very, it was very rudimentary back then, but it was very evident that that was going to be a, a skill set that clients were going to have to rely on independently of their creative advertising focus. And of course, it was an adver- television advertising centric business back in those days. Um, and it's far from that now. Yeah, well, you know, um, my uh, colleague, uh, Michael Farmer in the US, he's been tracking creative agencies since 1995. And uh, he regularly, and is on the record as saying, a brand would produce around 150 to 200 pieces of work a year. And now it's in excess of 5,000 pieces of work because of this phenomenal, not just fragmentation of channels or or multiplication of channels, but also that the modern digital channels and and social media channels consume so much content. They do, and they also demand production of a different nature. So if you even think, again, just using very rough figures, if you think a typical TVC may have been let's say somewhere between $400,000 to $700,000. If a client had that amount of money available now, it's unlikely they would they would spend all of it on one TVC. Or the number of clients who would is, is much smaller than it used to be. However, those clients may still have access to that as a production pool, hypothetically, being entirely hypothetical. Mm-hmm. And the likelihood is now they would want dozens and dozens and dozens of pieces of content for the same investment. So by very nature, the whole ecosystem of agencies and the production model has to change. What's interesting, I think, is the degree to which it hasn't in many cases. I mean, Mm. I would argue that we are still structured in a way that was um, basically born in the 1950s in the US with mass consumerism, mass production, very limited number of media channels where you could achieve huge reach by very, very few channels. And yet that's the structure that uh, led to the birth of the modern advertising industry, if you like. And I would argue that many companies are still structured in that way and and in some ways are struggling with uh, redefining themselves and reconfiguring themselves to be as appropriate as possible. And that always gives rise to opportunity for smart people, for entrepreneurialism. Um, You see in the independent sector. And of course, you see it in particular, I think, at the moment with... uh, What's the Martin Sorrell's doing with S four C Capital? S four Capital. Capital. Good old S four Capital. Look, yeah. before we go there, yeah. I just want to rewind back to you know uh, you, you can tell by the uh, lingering accent that uh, you grew up in the UK, yeah. and uh, that you graduated from university, and then I noticed you went straight into a creative agency, yes. but in a media role. Yes. Was that something that you planned or was this uh, serendipitous or, or just, you know? No, it was complete, complete luck. Um, yeah, I haven't shaken off the accent, have I? I've been in Australia for a quarter of a century. Um, but I, I will say whenever I go back to the UK, people say I've got an Australian accent, which I'm... I'm I know, sure they do. I know it will sound strange to Australian ears, but, yeah, you kind of feel like you've got... Two homes, I always like to say, which is which is nice. I know that the story, which is not particularly exciting and is very common, is uh, graduated from University of London, desperately needed a job, went to a careers fair, 
got a job because in a company that had publishing in the name because I thought that sounded vaguely glamorous and creative. And of course, it was working in a publishing company um, on the media sales side. Quickly realised that actually it was far more exciting to be on the media buying side because uh, you could go out for nice lunches in London. And um, it sounds very flippant, but actually it wasn't a lot more than that. Um, I was. Oh there. look, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, when I made my midlife jump at twenty-five, I realised I'd jumped into the wrong area because the media department were the ones that had all the good tickets and Absolutely. the good lunches and the. You know, I, I had to wait for the photographer or the direct, yeah, exactly. film director to take you out. Exactly, and I and and it does sound a bit flippant, and you know, people may uh, correctly roll their eyes at such a, a flagrant and blatant opportunity just to, to, to have fun. But the reality is over 30 years later into my career, I still don't take those things for granted. And I still think we're very, very lucky to work in this industry. And if there are those sorts of benefits along the way, then then that's terrific. But no, the story is I, I, I was, again, completely lucky because I joined what I think is largely considered to be one of the greatest um, ad agencies and again, it was luck, not judgment, because they were the people who had a job going at the time. And they were called BMP. They are now called Adam and Eve, DDB, because DDB acquired them. But for those people who are of a certain vintage or who are interested in the history of advertising, BMP is probably up there as one of the great British ad agencies in the same way that DDB would be there in the US if you were looking at a US history. One of the things that was particularly great about them was they were one of the inventors, if not the inventor, or the founders of modern day planning. So they had a great focus on intellect, insight, understanding consumers, and working in that environment that obviously filtered through to the, the media agency or the media department as it then was. And so you had a, you had a real hotbed of super smart uh, people that I was able to learn from, many of whom are still very, very significant in the industry today. And, you know, names like Ivan Pollard, for example, who's the global um, CMO at General Mills, people like John Wilkins, who was the, the founder of uh, Naked, where, you know, I went to work and is now a chairman at Karmarama and Accenture. These people were very, uh, were all cut their teeth in, uh, in that dip- small department in London. Indeed, the European head of Facebook was one of my best friends who I sat next to in that team then. Little did we know at the time while we were learning how to plan and buy media. It's amazing, isn't it? One of the great things about advertising is the way that it can attract incredibly intelligent people, you know, curious people, and often unusual. You know, they're they're not ones for the corporate life. And yet when the right combination comes together, it absolutely produces magic, doesn't it? It does. Well, I think that's... I think there's something in that, and you can look at it in any any team environment, sometimes you, you just get a generation that comes together and, and, and people who aren't necessarily the most talented or visionary within that team, and I, I certainly wasn't one of, one of the, the, the leading lights in that team, but you get carried along on a wave by other people who are real pioneers. And yeah, I was, I was very lucky. That was a, an incredible group. And um, I think Campaign Magazine named it as uh, the best ad agency 
of the century in the mm. UK or one, one of those hyperbole driven articles that they write from time as, to time. As our industry is exactly. what. <laughs> but let, you know, let's, let's be honest, Aaron, I could have just easily, just as easily ended up in a, another agency which had nothing like as much intellectual heft and uh, would probably have uh, left the industry after two or three years and done something entirely different. But Mike, it wasn't just uh, media because the next, well, you had a role on the client side, didn't you? Um, a Warner Music. Yeah, I think not unusually. Um, I worked on that client for a number of years at the agency and um, they were looking for someone senior in the marketing team and I think sometimes, you know, better the devil you know and ultimately they offered me the role and um, I went to work. Interestingly, the head of marketing there who was a former advertising planner himself, so again, there was probably some connection. But yes, that was a, that was a fun time as I think anybody probably in their 20s who was into music and that being you a passion. Yeah, you personally have a passion for yeah, music, well, don't you? Absolutely, and I think most people in the music industry do. So, that, you know, that was a great time, living living the life in London and working with famous artists and going to Glastonbury and it being part of my work. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to have. Um, I think often it's good not to work with your passions because it can be sullied a little bit by the, the commercial reality and, the, um, and, and you lose a little bit of the enjoyment. But no, I, I absolutely loved it. And so I worked on that with Warner Music for three years in the agency side and then three years as, as a client before I moved to Australia. Can you remember back to that time? I know, you know, but from the point of view of being a client, did it change your view of what it meant to be as an agency? It it certainly obviously helped um, and because it was an entertainment-led business, you were briefing the agency for both thinking and doing a lot of, you know, almost every day because there were so many campaigns going through. And having done the job on the agency side, the first thing is you have to be extremely respectful of the people who are doing the job that you used to do. And often you would know the answer that you wanted them to give, but you have to give people the leeway to, um, to demonstrate their capability. Um, equally, though, it also meant you could shortcut sometimes and you could get to an answer quicker. And I think once you get to know the people on the other side, in that case, in the agency, then you were able to um, get respect for each other and just, just move forward together. Um, terrible cliche, of course, but there's I think there's two types of... Uh, there's two types of clients and, you know, I run an agency now and certainly something that recent uh, experience has borne out. There's clients who say they want a partner relationship, but they don't really. They want a master-servant relationship. I've always been of the view that you get the best work with a true partnership relationship. That's why even in, you know, e even today, I'm, I suppose, one of the media agency leaders who is quite happy for media owners to have direct relationships with clients. Um, and I know that's not the case with every agency. So I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong. I think it's about what you believe in. No, I'm, I'm really glad you said that, Mike, because uh, I think it requires a huge amount of confidence, which comes from maturity, on both the client side to be a, allow the agency to be a partner, but also then when you went on to say having the media owners also partner with your client, because what that means is You've given up this um, almost childish desire to try and control, control everything. Exactly. And you're willing to step back and create the space for everyone to actually do the best they can yep. in that contribution. Well, I, I, I think so. And I, I, think, I think that's where you get the best results. That's not to say 
That's not to say sometimes you don't get burned. And I've had that experience every time as well. But I think every time you give somebody um, some leeway or some freedom, there's always a chance that a small proportion will take advantage of that in a way that wasn't desired. And I think once you accept that that's an, that's a, an occupational hazard or a small degree, a small component is, is likely to go awry, that's fine. You live with that. But I think the best work is a, a tripartite, three, three-part relationship between client agency and media, um, even more so now than in the past, given mm. that there's so many different variables available um, in order to uh, produce solutions for clients. Well, it is also part of growing up where you're willing to accept the responsibility for the mistakes of others, especially those that you're in the role of managing, isn't it? Yeah. It's a big growing step, isn't it? The first time you give someone responsibility and create that space for them and they let you down and you have to fess up, you know, apologise to either the client or someone else and take the responsibility is a big step for a human being. I think in in our world, in the the client agency world, that's something you can establish really quickly with clients because clients want to know who you are as a person and know how you operate. It's something I tend to try to establish very, very quickly. But it's a little bit like being a parent, isn't it? You have to uh, you have to give people the opportunity, and sometimes sometimes they let you down a little bit, but nearly every time you it's it's the good it's a good decision. But uh, that's okay. Well, it's uh, one of the questions or one of the conversations I find myself having with a lot of uh, uh, clients, advertisers, is that I've yet to find an advertising agency where people turn up every day to do an ordinary job. You know, it's one of those industries that really does attract people that want to do yeah. great work. Yeah. So I say to them, because they'll be talking about, well, which agency is the best? So every agency will be fielding the best team possible. Yes. Whether they can produce the work is so many things yes. other than the team, yes. including you and the yeah. role that you'll take in this. Yes, no, that's right. And, the, you know, there's so there's so many an- anomalies in that structure, isn't there? There's the... There's the people that uh, clients see, there's the people clients don't see who do an awful lot of work that sometimes don't get the credit. I think it's really incumbent on us as managers and leaders to make sure that everybody who plays a role in the system is, is duly rewarded and recognised. I think most people in, in agencies, they just want recognition for, for hard work and creative thinking and going the extra mile and all of those things. I'm, I'm not sure always as an industry we're, we're as good as some of the others. I think... Uh, there hasn't probably been as strong an emphasis on training and personal development as there are in other industries. And I think if there was, we would uh, we would benefit um, immensely. I think sometimes it goes in the uh, in the important but not urgent bucket, mm. and therefore can tend to get um, overlooked, particularly in tougher economic times. T- tends to be one of those things that gets parked a little bit. I think one of the problems with that. Uh, pulling back of things like training. And and when I talk about training, I'm not talking about formal training, mm. as in classes and things, yeah. but even, you know, the mentoring that yeah. people used to get, you know, yeah. that there was a time in agencies were able to have the resources yes. that you didn't just do the job. There was usually other people yeah. there that were able to share with you the lessons yeah. they'd learnt. 
Whereas yeah. you take all that away, you know, you slim down the agency resources, you take away the training. Yeah. What you're basically setting up is for people to make the same mistakes and learn the same lessons over yeah. and over again. And, of course, it's ironic because, as everybody knows, essentially our, own, our only variability in our businesses is our people. Mm. I mean, we, don't, we don't have manufacturing bases and giant factories. It's all about people. So it's kind of an irony that perhaps we don't, over invest in people development and as you say it's not just um sort of the the day-to-day -day skills but it's things like mentoring and giving people um experience i have to say though one of the one of the things i would um say is a difference now to when i was starting out is i think young people tend to be a lot more resourceful than they used to be i think there's a lot more self-starters there's a lot more energy Perhaps when I was starting out, you expected the corporation to look after you and to structure the path for you in a, in a more linear fashion. Um, here, I'm, you know, I never cease to be amazed by some of the endeavours that my younger staff members get up to out of work, some of the creative pursuits. Their um, side hustle. Their side hustles, their commercial nows, their creativity being brought to the fore um, in many other fields. And, of course, that's partly enhanced by technology. Um so yeah, I think uh, I think the future of the industry is is positive. I'm always a glass half full person. I I actually I actually get more buzz from what I see the younger people in my company doing than I do necessarily from conversations with some of the uh, older, more established uh, mm. le leaders around town. Although obviously a lot of them are very good friends of mine. Well, and I think part of that goes to what I see as the driver of creativity, which is curiosity. Yes. 100%. You know, and that people age when yeah. they lose their curiosity. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that keeps you young is that constant wonderment and, and questioning, which is it comes in spades in the young people that you recruit. Totally. Well, I, I, spent, I had a stint when I arrived in Australia 20-odd years ago in a management role at a WPP media agency. And my job there, as well as looking after the business and clients, was to train young people and develop young people. And what I found in the last decade or so is I learn more from the young people than I teach them in many ways. And that feels like a fundamental change. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a two-way street. But, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a hotbed of superb talent um, in the industry, in this market, and uh, we should do everything we can to, to continue to develop it. Yeah. So after, uh, and that was at MEC, yeah. wasn't it? You, yeah. You were running MEC here. The Sydney, the Sydney office, office yeah. yeah. So, to, to, yeah, so I wasn't running the whole company. I had a, no. and a very influential boss, a man called Mike Porter, mm -hmm. who many people in the industry will have uh, learned from, and I don't mind mentioning him by name because he was a very influential man. And at the time I was running the Sydney office and Mark Code, um, was running the Melbourne office, so again, very you know, very strong uh, leadership in that group. A couple of big names of Australian media. Huh? There you go. So, but then, and and this is something I want to focus on is that you actually uh, start well. One of the people that founded Naked or brought Naked mm -hmm. to this market. Yes, that's right. So I, uh, again, it all comes down to people and who you know and relationships. But I, in my London agency BMP that we mentioned, I had worked with. Um, the guys who subsequently founded Naked in the UK. That launched in about 2000, I think, and expanded into various markets around the world. I was still very good friends with them, and they approached me to uh, see if we'd be interested in launching Naked in Australia. Um, 
absolutely was. It was a fundamental challenge to the status quo of agencies and their structure and felt like the right offer at the right time. And uh, that we, to be frank, we replicated the model that had been so successful in London, um, which was with two smart media guys and one strategic planner. And um, those two people who were far, far smarter than me um, were Adam Ferrier and Matt Baxter, who, as I think most people who probably listen to this, would be familiar with both those guys who are absolute legends in their own right. So the three of us... I've now pulled the trifecta because I've actually recorded a podcast with both of them. So you, you actually go. complete that uh, triumphant. There you go. So I, I was talking to Matt, funnily enough, about working together um, at WPP. And I'd done some projects work with Adam. And they felt to me like to be the, the perfect partners for an anarchic, industry-challenging brand like Naked. Okay. So what was it about the uh, the opportunity of starting naked because as you just said you know it completely ended up being like the hexagonal uh, peg <laughs> in the very square hole of advertising here I mean it didn't just redefine it no. it sort of crashed its way into it it did it? and to, to be honest the uh, well it, it's obviously there's obviously a number of elements to it if I could distill it down essentially agencies, um, particularly media agencies, had been working in a very traditional way for a long time, and yet we were sitting on the advent of digitization and you know, the first dot-com revolution. And it was very obvious to clients and to smart people in agencies that there was a different way or potentially a better way to do things than they had previously been doing. It was compounded by the fact that the way media agencies were structured was predicated on doing deals with media owners. So in other words, if you're a brand owner, it meant that your money was likely to have been spent on your behalf by a media agency with a media owner before you'd even issued a brief as to what your brand objectives were. And yet we were sitting on the cusp of this digital ecosystem and landscape which wasn't being taken into consideration. You had that coupled with smart people in agencies who could all see the folly of this uh, media industry structure. And they were what we used to call brilliant misfits. They were frustrated by the silos in which they found themselves, the limited opportunities they had to express themselves creatively, creatively and intellectually. And they just needed a place which said, all of those historic boundaries can go out of the window now. There's a better way. Let's talk to clients. Let's work with media and digital companies in a different way and bring some proper um, intellect and creativity to planning, which, which was lacking. And I'm, I mean really channel planning and, and media planning. And to be honest, everybody got that. Naked was the first. It kind of broke the mould a little bit, even if I say so myself. Um, you, can, you can argue if you think that's not the case, Darren, which I'm fine to have that discussion. But here we are. 20 years later or 16 years later in Australia and I think it's kind of accepted because most agencies have a, a discipline and a worldview that encompasses exactly that thought. Channel planning is commonplace. Um, people, media agencies output isn't necessarily predicated on deals with media owners anymore. Perhaps it is in some ne uh, networks and agencies but not, not particularly compared to how it was. Yeah, I, I think though the difference was that the starting point 
And this is, you know, an observation as an outsider to Naked, but seeing the way that Naked in this country operated was that the starting point was, okay, what's the problem? Exactly. Now what is the best solution? Exactly. And it wasn't necessarily either advertising no. or media. No. It was considering the full range of things. And yet... That's right, Darren. That's right in a, in a pure sense. But think about the context in which that, that existed. That existed in a context where the solution had already been pre-chosen by agencies before the client had ever even briefed them. Yeah. So I, my, perfect timing. I, yeah, I absolutely get that, except that you said that now it's commonplace. I still find media agencies, even though they offer, you know, and some agencies get more than half their revenue from non-media services, they don't talk about it a lot. And so the perception is that a media agency does media and yeah. a creative agency does creative, and yeah. God forbid they go to a digital agency yeah. because isn't yeah. it all digital? But that there are still these silos yes. or these boxes, these yeah. pigeonholes that the industry still tries to fit into. Yeah, I think so. It's a, well, it's, it's a, it's a very fluid uh, Marcom's ecosystem now. Um, I would think nearly all of the media agencies have got content offer. I think if you're in a PR business, where, do, where does social live? Does that live in creative? Does it live in PR? Is it, we're, the, we're the ones with the issues that we've created these silos, the whole Clients don't want need silo solutions. They just need, as you say, solution. the right solution to their problem. <laughs> and and not the one exactly. that says, oh, look, I've got a hammer. Where's the nail exactly. you want me to hit? Exactly. And and to be honest, that's what Naked was identifying um, 16 years ago in this market, 20 years ago in the UK. And um, I think when you start something or when you're one of the first to do it, you're only ever going to appeal to a certain sector of the marketplace. So we tended to attract clients who recognise that as well, which wasn't a mass market. So, um, but we had we had a, we had a good time and we had a good brand as well, and we we sort of uh, made a noise um, above our size. And when you've got leaders like Adam and Matt, they were always going to make sure we had a, a, a strong opinion um, in the marketplace. And uh, it's a time I look back on very fondly. And also, if you look around the industry, there's a lot of significant leaders in this marketplace who, who went through Naked at one point or other. And also some phenomenal strategic creative people through Naked globally yes. as well. Yeah. I mean, there is just like this, yeah. you know, this honour roll is, yeah. of really smart thinkers. So I reckon I've been really lucky, Darren. So I can, I can retire in years and years to come, hopefully quite a few years to come, and say, I've worked for two of the greatest agencies. And uh, many people only work for one or don't even work for one, but mm. I can say that. And it's not down to me. I think it's much more luck than anything else. Probably a bit of good good at relationship management. But um, yeah, I think having come through BNP in the UK and then Naked is uh, very, very lucky. Well, I think you're being uh, a little bit humble here because it takes a particular type of manager and i use the word manager advisedly but to get the best out of creative people is is uh, requires you to create the environment to allow them to excel i mean you can take the the best creative people and try and jam them into a a system of command and control and hierarchy it's just not going to work no, so so are there any lessons that you can share about the way you manage those 
brilliant. What did you call them? Brilliant misfits. Brilliant misfits. That was our that was our recruitment policy globally. So we literally would apply for brilliant misfits, and they tended to be people who were frustrated in, as you say, a command and control siloed environment, um, which the advertising and media industry had developed. Um, well, let's put it this way. I can't see many of them sitting in filling their timesheets out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, well, two things. I think firstly, there's something around people management or getting on with people which possibly can't be taught. I think it's just something you, you know, you naturally have to a degree, um, although I, I suppose you do learn it as, as you're growing up, but not necessarily in, in just in a business environment. And the other thing is I think management and managing people is in itself um, a discipline that you need to be trained in and learn and understand or teach yourself. And as I say, I think quite often that's not the case in our industry. People are expected to sink or swim. I think we quite often promote people who are very good at a particular craft skill into a position of management. To be honest, I was never the best in the craft skills of media planning or media buying but I was quite good at managing, and it's a different it's a different discipline. Um, so I've been very lucky. I've worked with super people as well. I mean, with Adam and Matt at Naked, at Naked they had incredibly different skills um, than the ones I did. But I was quite good with managing, manage, keeping my hand on the tiller and managing people and keeping the thing uh, going forward. And different personalities and different requirements. You know, and and that's I guess what I'm trying to get to is that. Because you know, my observation is that some managers will give creative people as much rope as they need to hang themselves. Yeah. Whereas it'd be probably better to say, if you're going to give them rope, it's to only build a safety net for when they yeah, fall. Exactly. I mean, I've always seen myself as, I've certainly never been a, a ranter and a disciplinarian as a manager, more or someone who sort of just nudges people and keeps them on the right path and has you know has a has a grown up conversation when required every now and then but nothing nothing dramatic I certainly I don't have a management training book in me um, I think it's, uh, it's you respect people and you make sure people I don't know, are you've got a recognised wicked, Mike you've got a wicked sense of humour yeah. you know I, I think that uh, there's been times where you've sat back and chuckled when people that are working with you have either said things that uh, you know have probably got a reaction or whatever so you're not you're not uh unwilling to take some risks are you yourself no no not, not at all and uh if you can't have a bit of fun in this business i don't see what's what's the point we all could have chosen we all could have chosen far less creative and uh fun and left field careers but we chose to be in this one and i must admit when uh, when i was quite young in my career i wondered what i'd be doing when i was 30 and uh, now I'm in my 50s and I'm still really happy that I'm here. It's good. It keeps, keeps me young, to be honest. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm. Um, you used the word creativity. A lot of people have started to lose sight of how creative media actually is because I think some of it is the, to have the audacity to say there's a creative agency and therefore the media yeah. agency can't possibly be creative. Yeah. Is, uh, is a misnomer. But, you know, what do you think is driving or should be driving creativity in media these days? Well, I think, uh, well, that's a, that's a big question, but I think in terms of, let's call it message delivery, I think often the context is just as important as the content and it's up to the people who work in 
largely media agencies to define what's the correct context. Again, I think one of, one of the things that sometimes gets over, overlooked is that can actually influence the message delivery itself or the message content itself. But quite often there's, there's resistance to that. It's, messages are done over here in this team and uh, never the twain shall meet with media, which is all about delivering audiences. Well, that's, that's not strictly true. It's delivering audiences in a certain way um, with a certain value. And that's, that's what context planning is. Um, so I think if you sat down with the head of a programmatic media team and said your job is not creative, they would look at you very strangely because they have to use a lot of creativity in terms of understanding different strategies and connections. Perhaps it's not the same. And when people think about creative traditionally in our industry, it's about advertising mm. or paintings. Whereas actually there's a lot of creativity of thought and structure, which goes into really compelling solutions for clients. I sound like I'm getting a bit jargon ridden now. No, but the, no. the point is media agencies are not just automatons. It's not just spreadsheets. There's a lot of thinking. And of course, there's so many options now, almost an infinite number of options. And uh, the role of strategy is increasingly important. It's always been uh, something I've, I've championed. I think sometimes strategy tends to get overlooked or downplayed or not valued as much as it should be. And the Australian market's a very, very sophisticated marketplace, as sophisticated as anything in the UK or the US. And um, what, what is included, and often what's not included, is just as important as well. So it's a, a sort of very rambly answer to your question, Darren, and I apologise. But uh, no, there's a, a different style of creativity. Yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, often when I talk to other media people, they'll immediately go to doing a media first. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're the first to do yeah. this. So, yeah, it's like, okay, well, yeah. that's partly opportunity yeah. and partly... Yeah. But I really like the idea of contextualisation yeah. because one of the things I think gets lost, especially when people talk about programmatic, is that it sounds like it's almost done by numbers. Yeah. You know, it's painting yeah. by numbers. Yeah. But the thing that has to be considered is the environment. Completely. What's around the message Completely. that either sets the person up to be open receptive. to exactly. and receptive to exactly. it or not. Exactly. You know? and uh, Which is very much about knowing people, isn't it? It is. And, you know, you, you can go back to the the earliest principles of media planning. And, you know, it's right message to the right person at the right time, at the right price. But that was always seen as a bit of a holy grail. But the reality is we can do that now. Mm. We now have at all, scale. At scale, we now have the complete capability to deliver against that holy grail, which we we kind of always sort of aimed for, but never really thought we could do. It's absolutely doable now. But there are hundreds and hundreds of what the programmatic guys call strategies um, and different ways to get messages to targets now. And you have to you have to really understand targets. And that takes us right back to strategic planning, um, perhaps in a different iteration now. But uh, I think it's a very lazy stereotype to say people in media agencies aren't creative um, in the same way as you would say if you'd said people in creative agencies don't understand data. It's nonsense. You need, mm. to, you need to have all of those capabilities to do the best possible jobs for your clients. So the, um, the next big thing I wanted to touch on, and that is this idea of trust. Because from my perspective, you cannot do business together unless there's a base level of trust. 
Yeah. And yet there's been a lot of talk since 2015 yeah. the the uh, in the US with uh, the K2 report from the yeah. ANA and you know and and lots thousands of column centimeters yeah. and a demand for transparency yeah. whatever that means yeah. right what's where do you fall in that whole discussion around trust in media um, I'm pretty clear about it I think uh, absolute full transparency is completely um, necessary. Uh, we're in an industry that's constantly evolving and gets quite technical and sometimes clearly people have wanted to obscure the truth. I also think it goes back to foundationally the birth of media agencies because when independent media agencies kicked off, Sometimes there were unscrupulous leaders who would do everything they could to hide where they were making money from. It was never declared. Um, I think most people in the industry know that's the case now. There would be very few clients where uh, clients don't insist on transparency. And this particularly came up with uh, you know, program at the early days of programmatic media. Um, but all of our clients insist on it. I think... It, it's like anything else. If you're good at your job, you can absolutely put everything on the table. I think if you've got something to hide, then maybe that says something about your own acumen. Yeah. There is a flip side to that, though, isn't it? Because if the media agency is going to be 100% transparent, mm -hmm. there has to be a level of trust that the client really is going to allow them to earn a sustainable profit margin, yep. for instance. Yep. Because, yeah, you know, one of the things we have seen is 20, you know, 20 years, and I almost pulled you up very early on, you said, you know, media agencies yep. could go off and, and yep. uh, you know, have their own yep. existence. Yep. But we, in the in the pre-separation, yep. uh, the 10% uh, commission was yep. the standard that's fee. Right. Now, that was for both creative and yes, media, right. and there was usually a service fee, 7.5%, yep. 10%, depending which market you're in. But we saw that collapse. Yes. We saw that go 10%, 9%, 3%, 1-per-cent trading only. Yep. I mean, this downward pressure. So the only way that you could make money if you were charging 1% media only is if you were making money somewhere else. Exactly. I'm not declaring it. And to me, that's, you know, that's fraudulent. So and there is a responsibility on both sides, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, but I think everything should be open. Clients should interrogate it. We should show them what our profit margin is. And obviously, we need to make money in order to keep the lights on and keep people fed. And there's, there's no shame in that at all. But it's funny. People often say, oh, it's not like the old days and there was more money around and you had great characters. Yeah, but they, in many ways, set us up for a fall because they weren't necessarily um, trading transparently and openly. And here we are in 21st century. It's a complicated business um, to staff, to run, to afford the technology, the research, etc., etc. It should all be transparent. And frankly, I was glad, I'm glad there was um, an ACCC report into sort of understanding the murky supply chain, particularly in digital. But this hasn't just existed in digital. It's happened a long time before digital. In many ways, we've been mopping it up for the last few years. Now, I'm not saying every single agency and every agency principal has the same attitude. You'd have to ask them. But um, I don't see how you can run a multinational media agency with the amount of scrutiny, auditing, legal jurisprudence that um, mm. you know, we're all subject to. And frankly, if you want to make your money by you know, behaving immorally, I don't know, it doesn't, doesn't sit well with my value set. Mm. 
Look, uh, Mike, we've run out of time. I've really enjoyed having this conversation. Thanks for uh, sitting down and having the chat. It's been my absolute pleasure, Dan. Uh, before we go, just uh, one question. Do you think in hindsight that perhaps Naked was 20 years before its time? Thank you.